Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. You honor us by listening in, and we're grateful for you. Um, Before we begin, I just want to encourage you to not let this podcast replace the local church in your life. God has designed it so that we are to join a local church and serve that body of believers and be shepherded by the pastor of that church. And that's something no podcast can give you. And so if you're not involved in a local church, let me encourage you to find one as soon as possible. Enjoy our podcast. Open your Bibles to John chapter 1. Before COVID-19 happened, I had intended to preach the book of 1 Peter this summer. I had told a lot of you that. Um, 1 Peter is about how to be faithful Christians in a culture that is more and more against you, which I don't know if you know, but that's kind of where we're living right now. Um, But as COVID-19 happened and as all kinds of controversy stirred up, um, I I just kind of felt the Lord saying, hey, go preach John and just show Jesus and all of his beauty to the people and preach 1 Peter after that. Um, Because there's so much controversy in the world right now that they don't need any more of that. They just need to see Jesus. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to go through the book of John and see Jesus in all of his beauty. Um, The idea of Jesus is not as hated of an idea as you're led to believe. People love Jesus as long as he's the Jesus in their own making. Uh, as long as Jesus is a nice guy who didn't judge anybody and taught everyone to love each other, they love that Jesus. As long as Jesus is a good moral teacher, they love that Jesus, even if they don't you know, really care to keep the morals that he taught. As long as Jesus is a revolutionary to get behind whatever social cause they're fighting for, they love that Jesus. But the real Jesus is not a popular idea. The Jesus of the Bible is not a popular idea. The Gospel of John is my favorite book in the Bible. It paints a beautiful picture of who Jesus is. Um, John the Apostle wrote it, one of Jesus' three um, inner circle disciples. He wrote it probably 50 years after Jesus ascended to heaven following his resurrection. Um, So understand, John has had 50 years to meditate on who Jesus is and what he did. And, and he's thinking about that, and he sets down, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to write this book. And John is, is up front with this point. Jesus is God become man. He is God taken on a human body. And if you believe in him, you will have life in his name. You will have life. As we look through this book, we're going to see Jesus in all of his glory. And my hope is that as we see that glory... We'll stand in awe of him. So John chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, 
which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Long ago, before there was civilization, before a tree had grown tall, before grass existed, before the earth was a thing, before the universe came into being, there was nothing. But God was there. God, God was there. God existed in eternity forever and ever and ever before that. God didn't need to be created. He's always existed. Everything else has a beginning. Everything else starts with something. Before you were conceived in your mother's womb, you did not exist. You did not exist. You weren't some spirit that existed in heaven, and when it came time for you to be born, God sent your spirit down to inhabit a body. That's paganism. That's not in the Bible. Uh, that, that, that's not what it is. Before you were born, you did not exist. Before you were born, God knew you. But aside from that, aside from him knowing all about you and knowing every step your life would take, you were not in existence. There was a day when the earth you're standing on did not exist. This building did not exist. The land outside, tots filled over there, did not exist. None of this existed. It, it, it did not exist. But there was never a day when God did not exist. He has always existed. He's always been there. That should be enough for you today to have your mind completely unsure what to do with it. How does someone exist forever and ever and ever and ever and ever in the past? How does that work? I don't understand it. Forever and ever before creation, God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit existed. John opens up his book saying... In the beginning was the Word. He was with God and he was God. <clears throat> with God and was God. How do you live with God yet be God? How does that work? Well, it's the Trinity. God is one God, yet he exists in three persons. It's, a, it's not supposed to be something you can logically understand. It's supposed to be something to leave you standing in awe and wonder. Um, it's important, though, for you to understand that. It's important for you to understand that God is one God in three persons because every other religion in the world denies it. Every other religion in the world denies that God is one God in three persons. The, the Muslims say that Christians believe in three gods. They don't believe in one. They believe in three. 
Those guys who come and knock on your door and give you literature, they don't believe this either. Mormons believe Jesus is God, but he and God the Father are two distinct beings. They're not the same person. Even though Jesus says in John 10.30, I and the Father are one. We're one person. Jehovah's Witnesses have a different Bible translation called the New World Translation. It's just tweaked enough to be able to make their theology stand, but it's not true to what the Bible originally said. So John 1.1 for them, it says, it doesn't say the word was God, it says the word was a God, was a God. Even though the, the original Greek of this passage says God was the word, not the word was a God, God was Jesus. That, that's how it worked. Jesus is not a God. He is God. He's not a God. Believing Jesus is a God, and there's a bunch of them, that will damn you to hell. That there's only one God. He exists in three persons. Maybe you say, I can't understand that. I don't understand. That doesn't make any sense. It doesn't work logically for me. Good. That means God is bigger than you can possibly comprehend so you can stand in awe of him instead of being able to figure him out to the finest detail. John says that Jesus created all things. Verse 3, all things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. It repeats that backward. It's always weird, you may think, when the Bible makes a statement and then makes it again. They didn't have exclamation marks. He's emphasizing something there. This is important. But notice, John says, in the beginning, at the very beginning there. Well, where have we heard that phrase before? Well, Genesis 1-1, the very first page of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then he goes through the creation in chapter 1 there. John 1 is going to actually parallel Genesis 1 in a lot of ways. You have in the beginning there, you have the light. Um, Jesus is the light, and we know that the light was the first thing God created. Um, and then as we work through this chapter in the next two or three weeks, you're going to see um, verse 29, the next day. Verse 35, the next day. Verse 43, the next day. Chapter 2, verse 1, on the third day. So there's this progression of days, just like the Genesis 1 creation account. It's trying to make the point Jesus created everything. He created it. Every blade of grass in the yard outside, Jesus created it. Every planet, every moon, every star in every corner of the universe, Jesus created it. He wrote the laws of physics. He wrote the law of gravity. The, the reason that when I take my bottle of water and drop it is because Jesus made it that way. He wrote it to work like that. He, he wrote the laws of momentum and thermodynamics. He, he made it so that temperatures rise and fall. Uh, on, as much as I hate to think about it, he made it so that the temperature in Georgia doesn't tend to fall. That, that means he, he, he created all things. He created you. He created you. That means you're his creation. He owns you. More than just creating you, he holds us together. That passage I read in Colossians 1, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Hebrews 1.3, he, he upholds the universe by his word. Every breath we take is provided by Jesus. Your heart is beating right now 
because Jesus says it does. You're not making your heart beat as we speak. It's just happening at the word of Jesus. And he's doing that with all 7.8 billion people on the planet at the same time. And your heart will beat the number of beats that it does until you die one day, all at the word of Jesus. It will not stop beating early, and it will not go on longer than he intends it. Every beat is from him. John says Jesus is the word. He calls him the word. He doesn't say in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. He calls him the word. Why does he do that? Well, many reasons John might have called him this. Um, First, obviously, is creation in Genesis. God created the world, how? By speaking. Let there be light. Let there be a sky. Let there be waters. Let there be land. He, he, He spoke. Um, There's also the fact that in the book of Proverbs, there's a lot of emphasis on words being what wisdom is, that that wisdom comes from words. Um, There's also the fact that in the day that John wrote this, the Greek people believed that the word of reason is what governed the universe. That is, reason and logic is what made the universe work. And so John is telling them, yeah, that word that you think governs the universe, his name is Jesus. But then there's also just the fact that what we say reveals who we are. You can tell a lot about a person by both the words that come out of their mouth and what they talk about. You can tell a lot about me by the words that come out of my mouth. I can tell a lot about you by the words that come out of your mouth. I can tell what you're passionate about. I can tell what you believe. I can tell what you don't believe. I can tell what is on your mind day to day. And the word that comes from God's mouth is Jesus. Jesus shows us who God is by the word that comes out of God's mouth. So Jesus is the word. Next, John says that Jesus is the light. It's kind of verses 4 through 13. Jesus is the light. The first act of creation, as I said, was light. Let there be light, day one. John says in verse 4, that the life in Jesus was the light of men. That is, life was in Jesus. It's been manifested to the world as light. The world was defined by darkness, and it very much still is. The world is darkness. In fact, later in Jesus' ministry, he will say the devil's kingdom is one of darkness in the world. And Jesus came, and he took control of this world. He came and reigned as its king. He overcame the darkness. That is, light shines in the darkness, and darkness flees from it. You get one little speck of light going into a completely dark room, and the light, the darkness flees because of the light. We come to verse 5, and it's really interesting, um, because what you read in your Bible and what I read in my Bible might not be the same. Um, It says the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Or your translation may say the darkness has not comprehended it. Why are there two different words, depending on what Bible we're reading? If you're reading the King James Version or the New American Standard Bible, it will say comprehended. If you're reading any other translation, I believe it says overcome. Why is that the case? Well, it's just a thing that when you're translating something from Greek to English, sometimes you're not going to know how to translate the word completely, and you're going to have debate over which way should it be. Um, certainly darkness was overcome by the light. As we said, light shines in the darkness. 
but the word here actually probably is comprehended. We're, that's going to be kind of a theme of John. John 3.19, men rejected the light because they loved the darkness more. They did not comprehend it. Verses 6 through 8, John's, John mentions a guy named John. He just diverts from this description of Jesus and mentions John. He's referring to John the Baptist, not John who's writing the book. Don't get those confused. Um, John who writes the book never actually mentions himself by name in the book, so he doesn't differentiate. When he talks about John, it's John the Baptist. Why does John feel the need to mention this, though? He's just said these incredible things about Jesus, and then he's like, yeah, there was a man sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness. He was just a witness. He was not the light. He came to bear witness about the light. Why, why does he feel the need to do that? Well, as we do with great preachers and celebrities, there was probably a tendency among some of the people of the day to worship John the Baptist. Have you heard that guy preach? You heard what that guy said? You seen that guy do ministry? He's awesome. And John's trying to tell people, don't worship John. He's not the light. He's a witness to the light. Also, there's the fact that Jewish people put very important emphasis on multiple witnesses. That is, if you had a court case and there was only one person bearing witness, it didn't fly. But if you had two witnesses, that's a pretty good case. Well, John has made this incredible claim about Jesus, verses 1 through 5, and now he brings in a second witness to say, yeah, that's true. That's correct. But... Despite that, despite those witnesses, despite John the Apostle and John the Baptist saying Jesus is awesome, Jesus is the creator, he's the one that gives you life, despite all of that, verse 9 through 13, the world still rejected him. They didn't want anything to do with him. The world rejected Jesus, he says, and the Jewish people rejected Jesus. Jesus was the one who gave them life, and they rejected him. The world rejects Jesus because they, they are in darkness and because they love darkness. They love it. They're not born again. That's what John's going to say. Those who did receive him were born again. They're born not of human birth, but of spiritual birth. That, that's, those who don't receive him don't have that. John's going to get a whole lot into that later in the book, but, but it's just the fact that those who are not born again, they reject Christ because they're blinded by their sin. They're dead in their sin. It's not something, you know, that, that, that we see in the world that's new, like it's been going on since here. When, when there's something that happens to you when, when you're saved, when you're born again, you receive Christ, God gives you a new birth. Man can produce physical birth, only God can produce spiritual birth, second birth, being born again. Not everyone in the world... Is God's child. This passage says that those who receive Christ become children of God. Sometimes you'll hear people say, um, you know, we're all God's children. All of us are God's children. I love all of God's children. But not everyone is God's child. Everyone is God's creation, but only those who receive Christ become God's adopted children. So, you know, we, we shouldn't expect people who aren't God's children to act like God's children. We shouldn't be surprised when they don't act like God's children. All the chaos that's been going on in the world right now, 
There's some Christians that have been lashing out at it like, what's wrong with these people? Didn't their mama teach them any better? Well, I mean, even if she did, I mean, the fact of the matter is, in the United States, a good amount of people don't have a solid home to be taught lessons from, but, but even if their mom did teach them better, they're in darkness. They don't know Christ. Why would I ever expect them to act like they know Christ if they don't know Christ? They haven't been born again. Honestly, based on what the Bible says about the state of people who don't know Christ, I'm surprised our national turmoil isn't worse. It's God's grace that it's not. We should pray fervently for the new birth of people who don't know Christ, that they would receive Christ and be born again, that light would shine into darkness and cause darkness to flee. Jesus is the Word, Jesus is light, and finally, 14 through 18, Jesus is God's Son. Verse 14, kind of the climax of the passage. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That is, Jesus actually became a human. He was fully God in all the ways that God is God, and he became fully human. He took on a human body. He lived as a human. That's another thing that I can't understand logically. Just like I can't understand the Trinity logically. God is one God in three persons. I can't wrap my head around the fact that someone can be fully God in all the ways that God is God, and yet be fully human just like me. I don't understand that. But it's what the Bible teaches. So stand in awe and wonder of it. The Gospels emphasize so much how Jesus was actually a man. He gets tired. He gets hungry. He gets thirsty. He bleeds. He weeps. He groans. And he dies. There were false teachers in the day, as there are today, who taught that Jesus only appeared as a man. He wasn't actually a man, he just appeared as one. And John's telling them, no, that's wrong. He was actually a human. In fact, later in 1 John, John says, look, we, we saw him. We touched his, we touched his hands. We, 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 we heard him. He really was flesh and blood. He really was. And he connects Jesus to Moses. He's connected him to creation. Now he connects him to Moses, 14 through 17. Just as that connection is made, Jesus dwelt among us. The word here actually is something like he tabernacled among us. He, tent, he pitched a tent among us. The readers of this would have thought back to Exodus. You know, the story of Moses. They get out of Egypt. They part the Red Sea. They walk through. They get the Ten Commandments. And then the rest of the book is honestly Moses giving instructions on how to build the tabernacle. So measure it this far this way, measure it this far this way, measure it that tall, put this stuff inside of it, put these curtains up, and you read it and you're like, what in the world is going on here? Why do I care about this? Because it's pointing ahead to one who would tabernacle among us, named Jesus. He would tabernacle among us. He would pitch his tent among us. He is, that, that tabernacle would be where God's glory dwelt on earth. It would be where God actually came down from heaven and was in, at on earth so people could come and meet with him. And now Jesus is that tabernacle. 
He is God in human form dwelling on the earth. It's another one of these issues where translating Greek to English people don't always agree. Um, We get to verse 16. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Your translation probably says grace upon grace. Except for one, there is the NIV, the newer NIV puts this grace in place of grace already given. So which one is it? Well, the, the word, I'm not going to get too nerdy here on you, but, but the Greek word is anti. Grace, anti-grace. That's what the passage says. What does it mean when someone is, when, when you put anti on the beginning of a word? So if, if I am anti-social, what does that mean? Well, it means that instead of being social, I am not social. So it's, it's probably more grace instead of grace. Instead of. The only translation, like I said, that gets it right is the NIV, the newer one. It's the fact that the law that was given through Moses, that's what he's talking about. The law that was given through Moses was a kind of grace. Before the law, man didn't know how to follow God clearly. There was no standard for what that looks like. But man could not keep that law. You cannot keep the Ten Commandments. None of us can. You have failed probably this morning at it. But now there's a grace given in place of that that forgives us and makes us new, a new kind of grace that that redeems us. It covers us because we can't obey it, and it's found in Christ. For the law was given through Moses, verse 17, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And we get to the pinnacle of it all. No one has ever seen God, but the only God, the begotten Son, who is at the Father's side, has made him known to us. It's been a packed 18 verses, so much stuff. I could have made this four sermons, honestly. Um, John brings the argument to a dramatic close with this statement, no one has seen God, but Jesus has made him known to us. Jesus is God's Son. Colossians 1, you remember, he's the visible image of the invisible God. Jesus shows us what God is like. You want to know what God is like? You want to know what what God values, who God is? Look at Jesus. There's no question he has revealed God to us. You know, a lot of times people talk about arguments for the existence of God that they'll say things like, well, a, a building has to have a builder. I don't believe this building just fell out of the sky. Um, have you looked at the complexity of the universe? If the earth was even one centimeter off the axis, we'd burn up or freeze to death. Like, there has to be a God. All those are great arguments, but the best argument for the existence of God is Jesus. God became a man and walked on the earth, and we know he did. That's the best argument. You cannot look at God in your sin. It would cause you to literally fall dead. You are a sinner, and if you look on the glory of God, it would kill you. Moses got to see his backside, but nobody sees God and lives. Jesus has made it so that sinful man can look upon their God and live. And not just survive, not just get through it, but have life in him. Have life life and have joy and have abundant life he has made that possible that's what jesus has done so 
What an incredible 18 verses. Wow. There's so much packed in here. There is so much here. It's packed full of so much glory. What do we do with this glory? Because a lot of this has been so far up there that I can't even reach it. Well, I would leave you with with this today. Behold Jesus in all of his glory. Behold him. Look into the depths of who he is. And understand that he's not some simple guy who just tells us not to judge people. He's so much greater than that. The American church needs to recapture how big Jesus is, how awesome he is, how magnificent he is. Far too often we, have, we worship such a little Jesus, such a puny, weak Jesus. A Jesus who is a good hero for, for five-year-olds, but not much else. He's not really applicable to a 40-year-old's life, the Jesus we worship. But Jesus is extraordinary. He far surpasses anything you can comprehend. When when we have a big Jesus, we will worship a big Jesus. When we are about proclaiming a big Jesus, when we have a big Jesus, we will be about proclaiming a big Jesus to a lost and dying world. We will have when we have a big Jesus, we will have supreme confidence in a Jesus who is full in full control over our lives and over the course of world events. Stand back and gaze at Jesus in all of his beauty, all his glory. Do not lose sight of the glory of Jesus. Do not reduce him down to a nice guy who told us to love each other. He is God. He is creator. He is sustainer. He is light. He is life. He is the word made flesh. He is full of grace and truth. He is Savior, and He is Lord. He is beautiful, He is glorious, and He is the light shining into the darkness. And though the darkness did not comprehend it, the darkness will never destroy it. He will never be destroyed by the darkness. So behold this Jesus. Pray with me. Oh, Father, what, what, a, what a glorious picture of who Jesus is, far beyond any of us can understand, Lord. May we have a Jesus that is, that is not down on our level, but is, is so far above us that we can do nothing but stand and wonder at him and worship him and, and gaze at him. Lord, he is the creator of our lives. He holds us together. He is the light shining in the darkness who will not be destroyed by the darkness. He's the one who gives us the new birth, who changes our lives, who transforms us from dead sinners to uh, people alive with abundant joy. And Lord, he is the one who shows us who you are. There are so many religions out there that have a God who is far away, who wants nothing to do with mankind. Jesus is the glorious God who came down to our level and and lived among us. And oh God, may we stand in wonder of that. In Jesus' name, amen.